Welcome to the Freak Show, fellow freaks. I'm Matthew Brockmeyer. And I'm Krista Carmen. And this is Murder Coaster. Today, ladies and gentlemen, we invite you to step into another time to enter into the brutal eastern edges of Europe in the 1600s, to ramble through the dark Carpathian forest of ancient Hungary and to the Gothic castle Chaktitsa, to roam the halls and discover eerie hidden rooms dedicated to the torture of young maidens. Brace yourself for bone-chilling tales of cannibalism, ghouls, and bloodlust so sadistic it bends the mind. A world where magical spells are cast to summon clouds of screeching black cats. Come and hear the legends and history of the vampire and witness the haunting secrets and alleged crimes of the enigmatic Blood Countess. Yes, today, ladies and gentlemen, we bring you the story of the infamous and brutal Elizabeth Bathory. In 1760, the Jesuit priest Laszlo Tarazzi set pen to paper to write a history of Hungary entitled Tragica Historia, and in doing so, wrote the first public account of the life and times of Countess Elizabeth Bathory. In his book, Laszlo described a woman of both incredible beauty and barbaric savagery, that bathed in the blood of virgins' servant girls as a means of staying eternally youthful. And so began the myth of the Blood Countess, a legend which would go on to inspire countless horror movies, books, and heavy metal bands. It's even said to be the inspiration behind Bram Stoker's legendary Dracula. Though scholars can find no proof of this, and historians seriously doubt it. Which just goes to show how nearly everything we think we know about Elizabeth Bathory is rumor, innuendo, and made-up nonsense. Even the legendary name Elizabeth Bathory, which has become synonymous with darkness and evil, is itself a westernized version. In her time, she would have been known as Erzbit Bout Hori. But since we are American English speakers and not from 1600s Hungary, We will continue to call her Elizabeth Bathory, and we apologize in advance for any words we mispronounce during this episode. We're going to do our best. Where this Jesuit priest got the fanciful idea of a beautiful countess bathing in the blood of virgin servant girls isn't known. Did he hear it rumored somewhere or just make it up on the spot for a bit of scintillating drama to sell books? We don't know. We do know there is certainly no truth to the legend. First off, blood coagulates very quickly, within seconds or minutes, depending on factors such as temperature or the concentration of anticoagulants. And in a bathtub, the coagulation process will be accelerated due to the large surface area exposed to air and quickly form a thick gel-like substance. Secondly, There's only a little more than a gallon of blood in a human body, a gallon and a half at most in a full-grown, large person. So it would take at least 11 servant girls for each bathing. And lastly, 
There is absolutely no mention of Elizabeth bathing in blood in any of the hundreds and hundreds of pages of accusations leveled against her at the time. And as we'll see, there were some incredibly horrible and savage accusations made. These accusations of bathing in blood and using the blood of virgins as an elixir came about a hundred years after the death of Elizabeth Bathory, during a time of vampire fever. During Elizabeth's lifetime, between 1560 and 1614, while ghosts and the walking dead were common supernatural stories, the vampire mythology didn't exist yet. There were terrifying ghost stories, especially after an epidemic in 1600 that killed at least 2,500, many of them rumored to return as phantoms, such as Gaparic of Lublo who was said to have returned from the grave as a sort of incubus, indecently assaulting maidens working in fields and slipping into his widow's bed at night. Eventually, his body was exhumed and burned, after which he was never seen again. But vampires, the blood-drinking undead, didn't start to make an entrance into the lore of Eastern Europe until the end of the 17th century one of the first being Peter Plogjovitz, a Serbian vampire whose exploits as a blood-drinking corpse really fueled the obsession in the 1800s. The word vampire itself only became part of the English lexicon in 1732, though its roots are much older, going back to the Czech and Russian terms uper, based on the root p, which means to drink. By 1751, books on the subject were being put out by European scholars such as Antoine Calmet in his Treatise on the Vampires of Hungary, Carl Ferdinand in his Magica Posthuma, and Giuseppe Danzati in Dissertation Sopra Vampiri. So it's no surprise that as this Jesuit priest was writing of Elizabeth Bathory, a hundred years after her death, accusations of a type of vampirism would be leveled against her. But it is also most likely the result of misogyny as well. She was never accused of being one of the living dead, but instead it said she used blood as a means of everlasting beauty. And here we can see a chauvinist male writer grappling with the crimes of an incredibly powerful woman and laying the blame on what he considered to be her feminine traits, namely vanity. As the legend of Elizabeth Bathory was propelled into modern culture, this is the image that would remain. A vain, feminine woman obsessed with her looks and youth, when in reality, she was a highly intelligent, well-educated widow who single-handedly ran multiple bustling castles full of servants, laborers, artisans, as well as large swaths of land, including 17 villages, numerous farms and businesses, and deftly dealt with complex geopolitical intrigue. She was a strong and powerful woman who was not afraid to take on men of all ranks, a woman who history has belittled into a vanity-obsessed prima donna. History shows us a woman who ruled with an iron fist, doling out brutal punishment to anyone who disobeyed her, 
standing up to priests, noblemen, even the king of Hungary and the holy Roman emperor himself, now transformed into a highly sexualized, nymph-like, vampiric creature known as Countess Dracula, her true image lost to the vampire myth. What we do know for certain is that Countess Bathory was officially charged with the torture and murder of 80 young women and accused of killing 650. Though the 650 number is most certainly utter bullshit, it is in the official records of the time and still bandied about today. In fact, the Guinness Book of World Records has her listed as the world's most prolific female serial killer. But some historians theorize that she was completely innocent of the accusations and that the charges were malicious slander and part of a much larger geopolitical conspiracy and land grab. So, was Elizabeth Bathory a sadistic murderer? Or was she the victim of high-stakes political intrigue? Let's sift through the facts and legends and try to discern what we can and get into the story of the infamous blood countess, Elizabeth Bathory. Countess Elizabeth Bauthori de Ext was born in the Kingdom of Hungary in present-day Slovakia on August 7, 1560, and raised in the Ext Castle. Her family were extremely prominent and wealthy. The Bathory family is said to be descended from a mythical hero named Vid Bathory, a knight who was said to have slain a dragon with a mace. And their coat of arms was three dragons' teeth encircled by a dragon eating its own tail, which I just have to say is totally badass. And the name Bathory? It's two words and literally translates into good hero. Elizabeth's parents were some of the most powerful aristocrats in Central Europe. Her father, Jorgi, was a judge and member of the Royal Council, and her mother, Anna, was the daughter of Stephen Bathory, the ruler of Transylvania. Her uncles, cousins, and grandfathers were all warlords or voivods of Transylvania and her uncle Estvan was the king of Poland. The Bathory family was so wealthy, in fact, that the Hungarian crown actually owed them money. So from birth, she lived the life of a privileged noblewoman. But at just four years old, little Elizabeth began having epileptic seizures and later suffered from severe migraines. Historians generally agree that the cause of these inflictions was all from inbreeding. All the nobility at this time intermarried and incest was rampant, and her parents were blood cousins, both sharing the name Bathory before they were even married. Mental illness was actually said to have long plagued the Bathory family. Elizabeth's uncle Sigmund was said to see ghosts at night and even try to attack these imagined foes with a sword. It's believed the stress from Elizabeth's chronic medical conditions made her quick to anger and fly into rages, even from a young age. Other factors affected Elizabeth as well. When she was just a little girl, she witnessed the execution of a gypsy who was arrested for selling children. The form of execution 
though relatively common at the time, was incredibly bizarre. He was stuffed into the carcass of a dead and rotting horse and sewn inside, where he suffocated to death. Elizabeth watched as the man was violently shoved into the cavity of the horse's corpse. And as the executioner began to sew the mall shut, the gypsy stuck his head out in a desperate attempt at escape. Seeing that man's head poke free from the dead animal, it filled Elizabeth with mirth, and she laughed and laughed and laughed. And this wasn't the only gruesome execution Elizabeth witnessed as a child. In 1514, she watched the rebel leader of a peasant revolt against the crown executed with his accomplices. The man was strapped naked to an iron throne. A metal crown was heated in a fire till it was glowing hot and placed on his head as embers were piled under the throne, roasting him alive. Pieces of his scorched flesh were ripped off and force-fed to his comrades before they were impaled on sharpened stakes and broken on the wheel. Little Elizabeth watched it all. But Elizabeth was highly educated, her parents putting a great emphasis on learning, and she was an eager student. She was taught advanced mathematics, astronomy, history, and could read and write in Greek, German, Latin, Hungarian, and Slavic, all at a time when most people were illiterate, including the nobility. Many weird rumors about her childhood abound. It is said that she fell into a pond and nearly drowned, but was rescued by a heroic servant who revived her. The servant carried her back to her mother's chamber, but when the door opened, her mother was in the act of an illicit affair with the captain of the guards. When her mother saw little Elizabeth staring at her, half drowned and in shock, she exclaimed, This is your end, you little monster! This incident supposedly scarred the little girl for life. But there's no actual historical record of this. It just seems like more innuendo used by writers to sell books hundreds of years after her death. When Elizabeth was 10 years old, her mother died. And a year later, in 1571, at the age of 11, Elizabeth was engaged to Count Frenick Nadatsi. He was 16 the son of a powerful Hungarian statesman. It was an arranged engagement, obviously, to strengthen the bonds between the two families. When they eventually were married, three years later, Elizabeth wouldn't take his name because she was of the higher ranking. But we'll get to that in a moment. First, let's talk briefly about Elizabeth's Aunt Clara. Aunt Clara has been labeled as a witch, a bisexual, and a sadist. Again, how much is true and how much is innuendo spread by political rivals or later writers of the sensational, we can't know. But most historians agree Clara was both bisexual and a sadist. It's believed Aunt Clara passed a morbid love of flagellation as a torture technique onto young Elizabeth which is not that difficult to fathom. Beating servants was typical of the times. It was a brutal era when might made right, especially on the eastern edges of Europe, which were constantly at war with the Ottomans. Brutal punishment was the norm. 
What is highly debatable is the concept many historians believe that Elizabeth and Clara fell into a sexual relationship. There is no definitive proof to such beliefs, but so much of Elizabeth's life has been shrouded in mystery, and that's partly why she's such an intriguing figure. But if Elizabeth and Clara were both bisexual, then it's not that far a stretch to imagine an incestuous relationship, as liaisons between family members was a normal practice. Elizabeth herself was the offspring of blood cousins. Clara is later said to have died when her throat was cut after being raped by an entire Turkish garrison. It really was an unimaginably brutal period in history. But it is a historical fact that Elizabeth was sexually active at this time, for in 1574, she became pregnant, and the father was not her fiancé, but said to be a good-looking and charming peasant. She was secreted away to Transylvania to give birth. What happened to the child is unknown. It may have been given to Transylvanian peasants, or it could have been killed. Dude, I just had a great story idea. It's about the illegitimate son of the blood countess, raised by Transylvanian peasants, but in his genes is nobility and a craving for blood. He rises through the ranks to become a nobleman and vampire, but he's forever bitter of his peasant upbringing. It'll be a story of class and intrigue. I'll call it the blood bastard. <laughs> Sound good? Sounds great, but I might fight you for that story. I also think that you should maybe travel to Transylvania to do some research. Just a thought. Bucket list. I'm on it. <laughs> and I get to beta read it. Hell yeah, of course. <laughs> well, they say Elizabeth's fiance, Count Ferenik Nadasti, then tracked down the father of this child, the man who had deflowered his bride-to-be and castrated him before throwing him to a pack of wild dogs to be eaten alive. When Elizabeth hears this, she is said to be intrigued, thrilled, and excited. Far from being saddened at the loss of her lover, she's impressed with the brutality of her fiancé. Then, on May 8th, 1575, the young lovebirds are betrothed. Their wedding was a grand and lavish affair, befitting her noble status, with over 4,500 guests taking place at the Varano Castle, which was owned by the Nadasti family. The ceremony was attended by numerous aristocrats, nobles, and important figures from Hungarian and European society. It was a significant social event, demonstrating the prestige and power of both families involved, solidifying the alliance between the Bathory and the Dasty families, which were among the most influential noble houses in Hungary at the time. The wedding celebrations lasted for several days and included feasts, music, dances, and various forms of entertainment, including jousting. The guests were treated to lavish banquets and indulged in extravagant displays of wealth. The event was marked by opulence, with sumptuous decorations, fine clothing, and expensive gifts exchanged between the families. And as a wedding gift, Count Farnick bequeathed to his new bride, Elizabeth, 
Castle Chaktitsa and the grounds around it, including 17 villages. Historical records and accounts suggest that Elizabeth Bathory and Ferenic Nadasti had a relatively stable and harmonious marriage. He would refer to her throughout their long marriage as his only joy. Oh, that's so sweet. And they had four children together, three daughters and one son. Records appear to show they shared parental responsibilities and had a family life centered around their children's upbringing. But it should be noted that it is also said they had a sadistic common bond as well. They both relished beating and torturing their servants, which we'll soon get into. But just four years after the wedding, their life of domestic marital bliss was cut short when Frenick is named the chief commander of all Hungarian troops and goes off to fight the Ottoman Empire in what was called the Long War which lasted 13 years. While Ferenik developed a reputation as a highly respected military leader during the Long War and became known as the Black Hero of Hungary, he also displayed a devastating cruelty streak on the battlefield, macabrely dancing with the corpses of his enemies, playing catch with their decapitated heads, and impaling captives on stakes like old Vlad the Impaler or Count Dracula had done over a hundred years earlier. With her husband away at war, Elizabeth now had to govern the local populace and run her castles herself. She had to manage their vast estates and properties, as well as thousands of servants, a role she took seriously, as is evidenced by surviving letters she wrote. The one nobleman, Late with payment, she says, You are well aware that if God's peace brings my husband back, you will have to answer and explain what you are doing, sir. You will know that this is the second or third letter I have sent, and I am highly angered. And to a squatter who was encroaching on her land, she writes, Do not think I shall leave you to enjoy it. You will find a man in me. And incidentally, telling someone you will find a man in me? Back in the day in Hungary, it literally translated as, I will crush you. So she was not fucking around. Many believe the stress of all this led her to lash out at her servants for any minor infraction, and that she learned to ease her tension through violence. It both cemented her role as a leader and dominant figure, and gave her an escape, a means of letting off steam. She found pleasure in violence. It was a learned response from a lifetime of watching brutality unfold about her in unimaginable ways. And it's during this time that Elizabeth hires Anna Darvulia, who would become an infamous figure in the events that would unfold. Anna was an older Croatian woman, and according to documents, she was devoted to the black arts and taught Elizabeth witchcraft. She was also known to be very violent, and supposedly enjoyed beating servants to death. She was the gatekeeper for Elizabeth, a very close advisor. There are also considerable rumors and beliefs that Anna and Elizabeth carried out a sexual relationship. But just as with Aunt Clara, we can't know for certain the nature of their relationship. 
There are many sensational stories of Elizabeth carrying on affairs with a variety of people, both male and female. In particular, a knight named Ironhead Stephen. But none of them have historical proof to back them up. But what appears beyond the doubt, though, is that Elizabeth and Anna carried on a partnership of savage sadism. This sadism is said to take on sexual overtones, as we'll see. And oftentimes, sadism is manifestly sexual. But again, we just don't know. But we do know for certain, though, is that Anna was teaching Elizabeth in the ways of witchcraft. This aspect of the relationship is backed up by historical proof. Yes, it's true. We know for a fact that Elizabeth wrote her husband about Anna, saying, She has taught me a lovely new spell. Catch a black hen and beat it to death with a white cane. Keep the blood and smear it on your enemy or their garment. Yowza. This is a real documented letter detailing how Anna taught Elizabeth to put curses on her enemies. So shit is undoubtedly getting spooky as hell over at Castle Chaktitsa. And by all accounts, Anna, who has been described as a wild beast in the form of a female, encouraged and instigated Elizabeth's sadism. It is said that Anna and Elizabeth delighted in murdering servant girls with what they called ice baths, which involved taking the girls out in the dead of winter, stripping them naked, and forcing them to lay in the snow, where they'd be doused in water and literally frozen to ice. Fuck, what a shitty way to die. And Count Ferenick, he wholeheartedly approved of these tortures and would even offer advice. During times he was at home, away from the battlefield, the Count would teach Elizabeth and Anna torture methods he had learned in war. He even brought Elizabeth a specially made glove with razor-sharp claws as a present. Like the Freddy Krueger glove? Exactly. He bought his wife a Freddy Krueger glove. That's uh, one twisted fucking love story. He also taught her a variation of the ice bath torture she loved so much, but one that could be done in the heat of summer. They'd tie a naked servant girl to a pole, douse them in honey, letting the wasps, gnats, flies, and bees descend and eat her alive for days on end while they forced her to stand upright. When the pain and shock grew too much and the girl would pass out, Ferenic showed his wife how you could put oil-covered coils of paper between the toes and fingers of the unconscious girl and ignite them, the shock of the burning jerking the victim back into consciousness. Ooh, yowza. Rumors abounded that Elizabeth was so inspired she built her own room in the basement of the castle called simply Her Ladyship's Torture Chamber. That is some seriously metal shit, but not in a good way. Yeah, and it gets worse. She would sew girls' tongues to their lips and delighted in stuffing pins and needles beneath their fingernails and reportedly even had her own daughter assist her at times. Mm. Now, punishment meted out to servants was normal at that time, even brutal punishment that ended in death. But Elizabeth didn't do this to punish her servants. She did it for kicks, plain and simple. From all practical appearances, she was a true sadist. 
So let's go over the psychological traits of sadism real quick. Sadism is a complex psychological phenomenon characterized by deriving pleasure or gratification from inflicting pain, suffering, or humiliation on others. Understanding the psychology of sadism involves exploring various psychological factors that may contribute to its development and expression. First, there's power and control. Sadistic individuals often seek power and control over others. Inflicting pain or humiliation allows them to assert dominance and feel a sense of superiority. There's also empathy deficits. Sadists lack empathy or have diminished capacity for understanding and sharing the feelings of others. They have difficulty recognizing or caring about the suffering they inflict. Another factor is aggression and impulsivity. Some sadistic behaviors can be directly linked to aggression and impulsivity. Remember, it's said that even from a very young age, Elizabeth was prone to fly into crazy fits of rage. And there's psychological projection. Sadistic individuals often project their own feelings of anger, frustration, or inadequacy onto their victims. By harming others, they alleviate their own negative emotions temporarily. And lastly, there's conditioning and reinforcement. If sadistic behaviors are rewarded or reinforced in some way, such as through positive feedback or a sense of power, the behavior can become reinforced and is more likely to continue. So, if we look at the history of Elizabeth Bathory's life, we can clearly see each of these elements at play. In fact, it's like a perfect storm. This formation of a grand sadist from the events of her youth. And if even a fraction of the accusations leveled against her are true, it's quite evident that she was a raging sadist, as was her husband, Farinick, and her gatekeeper, Anna. Here's a list of just some of the sadistic tortures of which she was accused to practice with her advisor, Anna Darvulia. She'd keep servants chained up at night so tightly that their hands turned blue and swelled so badly they spurted blood. She'd beat, cut, burn, and bite servant girls to the point where there was so much blood on the walls and bed that they had to use ashes and cinders to soak it up. When she learned of a murder technique of strangling with a silk scarf called the Turkish way, practiced in Ottoman brothels, she eagerly tried it out on a servant. She'd withhold food and water from servants, then force them to drink their own urine and eat their (laughs) own flesh, which was cut from their buttocks and shoulders. Uh, Also, and I quote, the flesh of maids was chopped and mashed as with mushrooms in the preparation of a meal and was cooked and served to young men who knew not what they were eating. She sewed servant girls' mouths shut if they talked too much, and this was actually witnessed by a very credible source. If a servant was thought to have stolen or withheld money, she would heat a coin red hot and brand them with it. And this actually was a more common practice at the time than you may think. She'd force servants to roll naked in stinging nettles. Fingers were severed from the hands with shears. 
After beating five girls to death, Elizabeth kept them under her bed and ordered her servants to talk to them and feed them as if they were alive, stuffing food into their mouths until the corpses began to stink so badly that the entire castle reeked of death. And there were many, many accounts of her using red-hot pokers to torture servants with, branding their arms, faces, the soles of their feet, and... Just get ready for this because it's a doozy. Even shoving the glowing metal rods into their vaginas. Uh, But she was also accused of utterly fantastical things as well, such as casting a magic spell to summon a cloud filled with 90 cats to torment her enemies. That one's actually kind of cool. Yeah, agreed. And a priest named Jan Ponikinis even claimed this magical spell worked. And he was attacked by a horde of devilish cats, which disappeared when he condemned them back to the depths of hell. (laughs) So many rumors of witchcraft in this case. It said cakes were baked using Elizabeth's bathwater and served to noblemen she suspected of being disloyal in order to bind them to her will. Servants say Elizabeth had a dark mirror she used to beseech the spirits, cast spells, and ask, for supernatural aid. At this time, Elizabeth was both secretive and vindictive in her crimes. A priest named Stephen Magyari confronted Elizabeth about two girls who had been buried in his church's cemetery, both of whom had, quote, died as a result of cruelty, which doesn't sound good. I know I don't want to die as a result of cruelty. The priest told Elizabeth, that she should desist in this abuse because God would be offended and the priest will be damned if he failed to admonish her. To which the countess replied, you will see, priest Stephen, that I will make you regret this. I have relatives who will not tolerate your behavior. You are creating a shameful situation for me and exposing me to public disapproval and I will write of this to my husband. The priest answered back, Well, if your ladyship has powerful relations, so have I. And mine is the Lord. Like it or not, I will have the corpses exhumed and you can see what you have done. At which point, Elizabeth went to her castle and did, in fact, write a scathing letter to her husband about the insolent priest. This letter has been preserved. But Elizabeth wouldn't have her husband to protect and shield her much longer. For in 1604, after a prolonged sickness, Count Ferenic Nadasti died. At the time, it was traditional for a husband to name a person to care for his wife after their death. And in an ironic twist, Ferenic leaves Elizabeth in the care of the man who would later orchestrate her downfall, Georgi Thurzo the future palatine of Hungary. Elizabeth and Ferenic had been married 30 years and by all accounts deeply loved each other. After his death, Elizabeth fell into a deep depression and would spend days on end sequestered in her chambers. In her despondency, she relies more and more on sadism and torture to ease her melancholy, having Anna bring her servant girls to cut, slice, burn, and even bite. It is said that when they were done with their victims, 
Their corpses would be tossed to wolves who would devour them and remains, erasing all evidence and scattering the bones through the forest. By all accounts, after her husband's death, the sadism and torture went up to extreme levels. No longer were the servants of the castle enough. New girls were recruited from the neighboring villages and actively searched for. And so, a group of accomplices was recruited by Elizabeth and Anna to aid in the escalating violence and mayhem. There was Janos Univari, who went by the nickname Fisco, which means little one. Because of this nickname, he is often seen as very short and possibly even deformed with a humpback, although there is no historical record of this. Elizabeth was said to be very fond of him. His main job was to dispose of the bodies. Yeah, well, you have to admit, a scowling, hunchback, short man, dragging bodies into the Hungarian forest for wolves. It just fits the horror story motif that has grown up around this tale. Right? Absolutely. Then there was Ilona Joe. She had been the nursemaid for Elizabeth. For those who aren't familiar with the term, this meant that Ilona had been a mother herself at one point, and then kept lactating in order to breastfeed the Countess's own children. So she'd obviously been a very close member of the family for a long period of time. Her main job was to lure unsuspecting village girls to the castle. She's the one who later claimed there would be so much blood on the floor that it could be scooped up and that ashes had to be used to mop up the gore. There was also Dorotoya Seventes, a servant girl who helped in the torture, as well as luring girls to the lair and helping Fitzko dispose of the bodies. And Catalin Benetsky, who was said by all to be the least cruel. It is said that she would have to be forced to help engage in the torture and was often scolded and punished for comforting the victims and slipping them bits of food. She was said to have been beaten so badly once for this that she spent months in bed recovering. The women are all portrayed in later writings as ugly and malformed, devilish crones, wicked and cackling, much like Shakespeare's weird sisters that greet Macbeth. But there's nothing in any historical records to sustain that, besides the fact that they were described as simply old. Again, it's just what future writers conjured up when thinking of the sadistic horrors unfolding in this gothic castle on the dark forests of the Carpathian Mountains. In July of 1605, Elizabeth's brother Istvan Bathory dies, and she journeys to the Ext family estate. And according to witnesses, including the coachman, along the way she flew into violent rages and tortured her handmaidens in the carriage so badly that three of them died and she ordered they be buried along the way. She later blamed the deaths on cholera. It appears whenever she had to attend large social events, she would become stressed out and have to torture and kill to relieve her anxiety. It's said that once abroad, while staying in an abbey, her torture of servant girls grew so loud that monks in a neighboring room began to throw clay pots at the wall in an effort to quell her. It is also reported that during her trip to the coronation of the new king of Hungary, Matthias II, she left a trail of murdered servant girls in her wake. She appears to have become unhinged, behaving in bizarre ways. 
her bloodlust and anger swelling ever further after the death of her beloved husband. There is a story repeated and witnessed by many about a young German woman from Bratislava. The countess, who was short of servant maids, ordered this woman to dress as a maiden and wait on tables at the castle of Arano during a wedding feast. Now, at this time, only virgins could attend the tables at a marriage feast. And the woman refused, saying she was married and had an infant son named Francis. The countess flew into a rage at the woman's disobedience and grabbed a log, put a diaper on it, and forced the woman to march about the castle topless while putting the log to her breast, pretending to suckle the log as if it were a child, before then torturing the girl to death. Yet some historians claim that this incident was not as unhinged and insane as it sounds. To have a servant, and a German no less, who disobeyed you, be paraded about the castle bare-chested while attempting to suckle a log would send a clear message to the others not to disobey. The orders of the countess. Mm. But uh, her exploits hadn't gone unnoticed. The Lutheran minister, Istvan Magyari, had been complaining for years about servant girls going missing after serving in the countess's castle. But to be clear, in Hungary, there was a clear distinction between the ruling and serving classes, and peasants had no protections under Hungarian law. So beating, torturing, even killing servant girls, it wasn't against the law. Technically, a noble could kill a servant without any repercussions. Noble on peasant violence was common, and it was practically sanctioned. In fact, as we've mentioned, some of the outlandish torturers, such as using stinging nettles and hot metal rods, they were actually quite common. And if complaints were made, they would have to be brought to the countess herself. So it would be foolish for a peasant to ever complain. But the situation began to change when in 1610, Elizabeth opened a gynaceum, or finishing school, an academy of etiquette. It's presumed by many that the countess opened the school solely for the reason of luring young girls into her web of sadism. Despite the dark rumors beginning to circulate through Hungary about the camp countess, nobles were sending their daughters to Chaktitsa Castle in order to be made courtly ladies and learn the etiquette and grace necessary for proper social standing. Now these girls were beginning to disappear as well. When peasants and servants disappear, no one really cares. But when noble girls went missing or turned up dead, it was a different matter altogether. And within weeks, girls are indeed going missing from the school. The countess claimed they died of disease from cholera or the plague, and the bodies can't be released for fear of spreading the contagion. Their families, nobles and not peasants, reported their suspicions and grievances directly to the king of Hungary himself. The king then sent Jorgi Thurzo, the new Palatine of Hungary, to investigate. Yes, the same man who Elizabeth's husband had put in charge of caring for his wife now becomes the one searching for evidence of her murderous ways. Just to be clear, the Palatine is the highest rank below king the most powerful aristocrat in all of Hungary. Basically, 
like a prime minister. Despite his oath to care for Elizabeth, Yorgi, eager to impress the king, begins sending letters to all the powerful figures in Hungary, saying, quote, You know how both in the past and present time, several serious complaints have come to us regarding the noble Lady Elizabeth Bathory, namely that she, through some sort of evil spirit, has set aside her reverence for God and man and has killed in cruel and various ways many girls and virgins and other women who lived in her gynoseum. So there's a lot of tension going on behind the scenes here. King Matthias II is a Habsburg, one of the most powerful families in all of Europe. And the Habsburg family sees the Bathories as both rivals in Eastern Europe and a threat, not to mention that the king actually owes the Bathory family a hefty sum of money. Also, the Bathory clan are Protestant Calvinists, while the king is a staunch Catholic. There's just a lot of political intrigue at play here. We're going to get into it later. But for now, the eager new palatine, Yorgi Thurzo, begins an in-depth investigation, questioning the people in the villages surrounding the countess's castle, and over 300 people come forward to level accusations against Elizabeth, both townspeople and nobles, and even a reverend who had become alarmed by the number of bodies Elizabeth had buried in his graveyard. I think we should point out, though, that nearly all these allegations are hearsay and rumor. There's really no eyewitnesses at this point, just folks who had heard the macabre stories circling around. But Yorgi, he eventually gathers enough evidence that he plans a raid on the castle. Elizabeth was said to have engaged in witchcraft in order to thwart the investigation. An official at her court named Stephen Vaghi asserted that she had a gray cake given to her by a sorcerer woman. In the center of the cake was a wafer, which she peered at while saying about Palatine Thurzo, I am looking at you through a wafer, and I cannot see you, therefore you can do me harm. But apparently obtaining magic cakes from witches was very common for noble women at the time. Hey, a witch has got to make a living. Selling magic capes seems like a good racket. But the spells set by the magical cake, they didn't work. For after a year of investigating, the Palatine had gathered all the evidence and testimony he needed for an arrest. Uh-oh, shit's gonna go down. In the early evening of December 29th, 1609, Palatine Georgi Thurzo, along with a group of royal officials and a number of soldiers, both on foot and on horseback, approached the manor house of Chaktsi Castle. The Palatine and his men pushed past the guards, stormed the building, and burst into the Countess's private chamber. There, they find Elizabeth Bathory, drenched in blood, torturing a young maidservant. She's screeching in delight as she savagely assaults the maiden and filled with bloodlust as Dora and Helena hackle in demonic laughter beside her. At least that's the story, according to Yorgi, who describes a total horror movie moment, the Countess caught in the act of torture and murder. But oddly enough, Yorgi's clerk, who documented the entire raid as it happened, wrote that the Countess was just 
partaking of her supper when officials barged in and arrest her. It appears catching the countess in the act of torture, this was just completely fabricated by Yorgi. Why would he state this? Why this dramatic lie? Well, we'll get into theories on that later, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Regardless of how she was captured, she was arrested and locked in a windowless tower of her castle. Yorgi would also come up with seemingly irrefutable physical evidence. The corpse of a young woman buried in the castle yard, showing physical signs of torture, and even a living victim with nasty gashes across her back and buttocks. If all this evidence wasn't enough to condemn Elizabeth, the testimony of her accomplices surely was. While Anna Davalaya had died of a stroke before the raid on the castle, Yorgi was able to round up Fitzko, Ilona, Doratia, and Catalin, and they all readily spilled the beans on their mistress. But it is important to note that the accomplices only gave their confessions after being tortured by the local executioner. Torturing those accused of crimes at this time was a very accepted practice, believed to be necessary in order to stave off paid witnesses and fake testimony. It was institutionalized all across Central Europe and was unquestioned until the 18th century. By this time period, the art of torture, or the inquisitorial process, as it was called, had undergone 200 years of refinement and was a very clear practice with actual handbooks for inquisitors to use. It involved several phases. First, the accused would be stripped naked and restrained. Phase one was simply displaying the torture devices to the accused. Standard instruments were many and varied. There were vices used to crush the fingers, metal pinchers, Iron collars spiked on the inside. There was the boot, a metal cylinder applied to the foot with studs on the inside. This will be tightened and tightened by driving wedges into it, slowly crushing the bones of the feet. There were flails consisting of slender chains attached to a wooden handle and the dreaded knee splitter. This device consisted of two spiked wooden blocks which are placed in front of and behind the knee. Screws which connected the blocks will be turned and made to close towards each other, destroying the knee underneath. Of course, there was the infamous rack where one will be stretched until their joints dislocated and the utterly brutal wooden horse or Spanish donkey, which was a triangular wooden block. The accused would sit on the sharpened point often with weights on their feet. With the pointed piece of wood jammed between their legs, the accused genitals were almost always mangled. The perineum commonly split open, particularly when victims were dragged from one end of the wooden horse to the other. Other unfortunate souls suffered shattered tailbones. And this device, this wooden horse, it was actually in use all the way to the American Civil War, believe it or not. Often just seeing these horrific devices was enough to get people talking. And phase two, it would be lifting the instruments up, just demonstrating their use and merely touching the accused with them. 
Phase three would be the actual torture itself, actively using the devices to their full force, crushing fingers, knees, leg bones. And in most cases, torture would ensue regardless of whether the accused confessed beforehand or not. Torture was seen as a means of certifying the confession. Obviously, a case as important as this would fall into that category. Fitzko quickly started talking, telling the inquest that he knew of 37 girls who had been murdered in a variety of locations, including the inner chambers of her various castles, in the privy, in the furnace house, and in the countess's carriages while they traveled. He claimed when Elizabeth wanted to torture, they found a way to make it happen. But he was adamant that he and the other accomplices had all learned how to torture from Anna and that she had been the driving force behind everything that happened. Whether this was the truth or whether he was trying to divert some blame away from his mistress is unknown. This was to be a common theme. While all of Elizabeth's accomplices confessed to some role in her crimes, they all put most of the blame on Anna Darvulia. Ilona upped the estimated count of victims to over 50 and provided a list of people who had assisted in procuring the girls. After the confessions, a trial was held for the accomplices on January 2nd, 1611, a trial which unsurprisingly was conducted almost entirely by persons in the pay of the Palatine, the prosecutor being his personal secretary. 20 jurors would hear the case and determine guilt. While the Countess was not under trial, her name was sullied to the extreme. She was described as a, quote, bloodthirsty female, unquote. The torture-induced confessions were read and 13 witnesses were heard. As the witnesses testified about the bodies they had seen being taken from the castle, the number of murder victims began to slowly tick up as tales of more and more bodies began to add up, stretching to nearly 200. And then came the testimony of a woman simply named Susanna, who claimed several of her friends were murdered. Furthermore, this Susanna claims that the administrator of the court, Jacob Silsvassi, had found a journal in a casket that Elizabeth kept in her inner chamber. <laughs> I love how she just has caskets laying around. <laughs> no, never know when you might need one, I guess. I guess not. <laughs> The misfits used to carry caskets around the band. There, there you go. They would nice. come out of them and then what they would use, they would use them as coolers to store beer. In. I mean, that seems actually like it would make a lot of sense. It's really fucking cool. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, in this journal were 650 names, each day detailed with a description of the servant's physical characteristics and the manner in which they died. And it's here we get the infamous number of 650, which has gone down in history as the actual death count. This is literal hearsay. She didn't even see the actual journal. She was just told about it. And she herself is never really identified other than with her first name and a claim that she worked in some capacity in the castle. The entire testimony is highly suspect, to say the least. But like everything else involving Elizabeth Bathory, once it's thrown out there, it sticks. 
She's accused of murdering 650 young girls, and that's what gets remembered. That's what gets written down, though there is absolutely no evidence to back this number. And remember, as she herself is not being tried, only her accomplices, she's never allowed to appear, refute the testimony of the witnesses, or even make a public statement. She's locked in her windowless tower the entire time, while all the wild accusations are made about her. A sentence against her accused accomplices was passed, which read, quote, As these most serious crimes should be matched by the severest of punishments, we have determined and we hereby decree that regarding firstly Helena and secondly Dorothea as these most implicated in the blood crime and as murderers, the sentence is that all the fingers of their hands, which they seeped in Christian blood and which were the instruments of murder, shall be torn out by the executioner with iron tongs, after which they shall be placed alive on the fire. As concerned John Fisco, he is sentenced to lose his head. Only his dead body will be placed on the fire with the two other condemned persons. They also executed the old woman who was suspected of supplying Elizabeth with her magical cakes. She was burned alive for sorcery, but wasn't even questioned or given the ordeal by water, which would have proven her a witch. Interestingly, at the time, death by fire was considered a natural death, fire being a force of nature, and beheading was actually the most noble means of execution. I mean, better to have your head lobbed off than to have your fingers ripped out and be burned alive. And it all sounds better than being stuffed and suffocated in the corpse of a rotting horse. Uh, I've actually heard, though, that when you're burned at the stake, you pass out and can even die from smoke inhalation before being seriously burned. So apparently it can be a painless ordeal. I don't know, though. It might depend on the type of wood they use. You know how smoky it was and all. I'd prefer to not ever have to find out or hear from somebody who who did find out and was spared at the last moment. We definitely would have been burned alive back in the day, too. A hundred percent, just by virtue of this one podcast episode alone. <laughs> um, but uh, regardless, Elizabeth Bathory was never tried, which was extremely unusual, especially for a noble woman who should definitely have had the right to a trial. Many were uneasy with her not receiving due process, including King Matthias himself, who more or less demanded that his palatine Yorgi Thurzo do just that. Thurzo, for his part, kept delaying, holding inquests which, since they weren't actual trials, Elizabeth was kept away from, and she was never allowed to publicly testify to her guilt or innocence, or question the claims of the witnesses which she would have been afforded in an actual trial. The first inquest was held in secret at the market town of Vag Yahali, one of the villages outside Chaktishi's castle. 34 witnesses were called, mostly of low birth, 26 of them being serfs. This itself, as well as the recorded testimony of her now executed accomplices, is highly suspicious. According to Hungarian law at the time, peasants were not allowed to testify against nobles, but their statements were used 
And some historians claim that the peasant testimony invalidated the entire investigation because a noble cannot be charged on the word of a peasant. Still, some nobles did attest to seeing many, many bodies leaving the castle. And of the many funerals that were performed without the ringing of bells, which means they weren't consecrated, which itself was a crime at the time, and sworn statements were presented from the families of girls who had gone missing or turned up dead after attending Elizabeth's finishing school. This did not appease the king, who continued to demand a trial. So the Palatine explained further investigation was required and held another inquest in 1611, where 224 new testimonies were heard. Again, almost entirely hearsay. But some incredibly disturbing tales were told by priests, squires, minor gentry, nobles, and knights. All the testimony officially certified into the record. But again, no trial was held. After more pressure from the king, Palatine Thurzo finally promised a trial would be held on March 22nd. And that, quote, it should be brought to a conclusion and examined according to the legal regulations of the country. But the date of that promised trial, it just came and went. The Palatine then sends a letter to the king saying that since the accused is exiled to her tower, she is formally considered legally dead and thus cannot be arraigned. Which, like, what the fuck? This is some crazy lawyer psychobabble going on here. He also states that crimes of this nature were so rarely committed by women that it was not clear under whose jurisdiction they fell or what the proper punishment was. But they had no problem killing the uh, sorcerer woman or her accomplices. They... Yeah. And he respectfully pressed the king to accept his pronouncement of permanent loss of liberty upon Elizabeth. So never officially tried or sentenced. Elizabeth Bathory was kept locked in the windowless cell of a tower in her castle, where she would die five years later of natural causes at the age of 54 on August 22nd, 1614. But it doesn't end there, dear listeners and fellow freaks. For as we said in the beginning, many historians think she was the victim of a conspiracy theory. So get out your aluminum foil hats and let's get into it. That's right. Many historians think there was much more at play here than meets the eye. And see a geopolitical conspiracy rife with intrigue. This is very complex, but we will try our best to break it down for you. All right. The first thing we need to do is break down the three geographic principalities at play here. Transylvania, Hungary, and the Holy Roman Empire. Traditionally, Transylvania had been Hungarian, but after the wars with the Ottomans, Transylvania was no longer part of Hungary and had become its own independent principality. And the prince of Transylvania was none other than Elizabeth's close cousin, Gabor Bathory. Now, like we said earlier, the Habsburgs were one of the most prominent family dynasties in Europe. And the king of Hungary, Matthias II, was a Habsburg. Traditionally, the King of Hungary and the Holy Roman Emperor were separate people, and Matthias had been King of Hungary while his brother, Rudolf II, had been the Holy Roman Emperor. But when Rudolf dies, Matthias becomes both the King of Hungary and the Holy Roman Emperor. 
This didn't sit well with many, the Bathories in particular, especially since Matthias didn't even live in Hungary, but ruled from Vienna, Austria. So Gabor Bathory, the Prince of Transylvania and Elizabeth's cousin, has his eye on the Hungarian throne. He believes he should be both Prince of Transylvania and King of Hungary, seeing the two as tied together, which they had traditionally been. He is actually Hungarian after all, unlike the Habsburg Matthias. Okay, so basically, Hungary at the time was divided in two by the Tisza River. The lands to the east of the river were loyal to the ancient Hungarian families, like the Bathories, and the lands to the west of the river were loyal to the Habsburgs. So the country was primed for a civil war, and it's no secret that Gabor Bathory is gunning for the crown. So in 1610, it appears the Bathory family is targeted by either the Habsburgs or those loyal to them. Sigmund Bathory, the former prince of Transylvania, is accused of plotting against the Holy Roman Empire, a.k.a. the Habsburgs, and thrown in the Prague Castle prison. Gabor Bathory has assassins try to murder him, and then Elizabeth is arrested and accused of all sorts of heinous acts, smearing the Bathory name. Elizabeth's arrest makes sense in a strategic manner as well, in that if her cousin Gabor decided to attack the Habsburgs, Elizabeth's lands would have been a crucial and strategic battlefront to hold. And there's more. Elizabeth's son Paul was in line to be the next prince of Transylvania, but Jorgi Thurzo wanted his son to be the next prince of Transylvania, which would align Transylvania with the Habsburgs. So by trumping up charges against Elizabeth, Jorgi not only thwarts the Bathory family from their aspirations of having Gabor become king of Hungary, but also smears the Bathory name, making it easier for his son to become the next Prince of Transylvania and simultaneously puts himself in good favor with the Habsburgs. And this would explain why Jorgi Thurzo has Elizabeth's servants immediately executed. Now they can't change their minds or testify. They can't be cross-examined on the stand. They're dead, and only their torture-induced confessions remain. It also explains why he doesn't hold a trial for Elizabeth. If there was a trial, Elizabeth would be able to defend herself publicly. And remember, not having a trial for her was very, very controversial. She's a noblewoman and under law is allowed due process. It's troubling for the other nobles to see her not given a fair trial. Even King Matthias wants her to have a trial. So the question remains, was Countess Elizabeth Bathory a sadistic killer, or was she framed in a geopolitical conspiracy? I say both. While much of the accusations against her are obviously false, and witnesses were obviously tortured into giving damning statements, there's still just a lot of credible information damning her. Like, seriously, there's a lot of really damning evidence that reveals Elizabeth Bathory to be a vicious sadist who truly enjoyed murdering young women in terribly gruesome ways. Many, many families reported their daughters missing. Letters from these families still exist. And there were eyewitness testimonies to incredibly heinous crimes. One of the head servants, who incidentally wasn't tortured, stated he personally saw girls have their lips sewn shut. 
and many, many people witnessed bodies being disposed of, too many to discount. So while many of the crimes attributed to the Countess were exaggerated, if not wholly fabricated, and stories of her bathing in blood as an act of vanity to be eternally beautiful were created hundreds of years after her death by chauvinist Western writers hoping to sell books. When we filter out the bullshit, we still seem to be left with a powerful woman prone to migraines, stress, and epileptic seizures who in bouts of severe depression found solace in sadism. So our verdict is, She was not a vanity-obsessed prima donna who bathed in blood to ensure eternal beauty. But she was a ruthless dictator who dominated in an age of unimaginable brutality and was guilty of savage acts of violence and murder. And there you have it. And that's going to do it for today, dear listeners and fellow freaks. Thank you so much for listening, and be sure to join us next week for more tales of murder and mayhem here on Murder Coaster. And hey, we want to hear from you. Got a case you think we should cover? Did we get something wrong? Or do you just want to say hi? Email us at murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. That's murdercoasterpodcast at gmail.com. Catch you next time.